Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, John Lowrens. He's a producer of the Anesthesia Guidebook. Uh, He runs his own podcast and I wanted to talk to him about probably an unusual subject for people, anesthesia. Um, I'm guessing most people just, you know, they go through it, they wake up from it, they feel groggy and they move on and they don't really think much about it. But Thankfully, some people do. So, John, thanks for coming. Richard, thank you so much for having me. I'm really stoked to talk to you today. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background. Yeah, so I am a certified registered nurse anesthetist, or CRNA. So I'm an anesthesia provider, and I work at a level one trauma center in Portland, Maine. And I've uh, been working in anesthesia for a little over five years now and produce an educational podcast that you referred to, Anesthesia Guidebook for other anesthesia providers. What kind of people go into the field of anesthesia? Does it attract a certain kind of person? And why did you decide to work in it? Yeah, I don't know. I think I think all different kinds of people go into anesthesia, contrary to popular belief, even people who like to talk to other people. For me, I think that the thing that most attracted me, so I actually started out in undergraduate school studying outdoor recreation and became an outdoor guide. And through that process, I began teaching other outdoor guides wilderness emergency medicine. So how to take care of their clients if they got hurt in a remote setting. So I became an emergency medical technician and began training other outdoor guides in how to do risk management and be safe. And that was through Landmark Learning and the National Outdoor Leadership School. So that really kind of lit a fire in me to go on in healthcare. And uh, really the, the driving motivation for me to get into anesthesia was I wanted to get into a field where I knew as a clinician how to care for people, no matter what they faced, what kind of emergency or crisis they were facing, that I would have a skill set and a knowledge base to intervene and hopefully as part of a team, help save their life and get them on to the road to recovery. Well, so I guess you know you have a history of being interested in medicine and helping people. So maybe we could start with the outdoor stuff. Um, yeah, I know what kind of situations are pretty common for people that are outdoors. Is it because they're trapped outdoors, or is it because they're trying to camp and then something goes wrong? Yeah, I think that's pretty common. Uh, what you said in the latter there, you know, it's interesting. The National Outdoor Leadership School or, or Knowles keeps a database uh, of emergency incidents that happen in remote settings. And interestingly, most of the stuff is not the big rescues with helicopters and search and rescue teams that, you know, are very popular in the media. The most common things actually in remote settings are simple sprains and strains of musculoskeletal things. So people, you know, trip and sprain their ankle, sprain their knee, minor fractures, and then simple cuts and burns usually related to cooking in remote settings. So moving around the kitchen in a backdoor setting, so or in an outdoor setting. There are, um, of course, any medical emergency that you could face in an urban environment from chest pain and heart disease to heart attacks or strokes, diabetes, emergencies, seizures, any of those things can happen to people in remote settings because normal people 
like to go hike and bird watch and backpack and those kinds of things. And then of course, there are unique challenges in remote environments uh, in terms of the environment. So hypothermia is a risk. Envenomation by animals, insects, plants can be an issue. In other environmental factors like heat stroke, heat exhaustion, and then the whole gamut of trauma. Many of many traumatic accidents are are unique to the outdoor environment. So whether that's rock climbing and having a fall or um, an avalanche or something like that. So wilderness medicine professionals train their uh, participants and students in courses on how to manage all of those things in the unique setting that 911 emergency care may be several hours or even days away. So long-term patient care with improvised resources becomes a hallmark of the decision-making that we do in remote settings. Oh, so you're like an EMT, but like a MacGyver EMT, I guess, because you're out in the wilderness and you only have maybe a pack of stuff and uh, you have to help the person out there, uh, you know, stabilize them, help them however you can, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you've totally got it. So it all uses principles of Western medicine. So most common wilderness medicine programs are not training people in, you know, plant identification and, you know, natural remedies and things. It's all Western medicine, but just simple with, uh, with improvised resources. So how do you make a splint out of the things that you have in your pack? How do you consider evacuation and moving people who may be severely injured or having some sort of medical emergency that would make travel in routine ways like walking or hiking really challenging for them. So we, we cover all of those things. So yeah, that's, how, that's really where I got my start in healthcare and then went on in my training to pursue other things along the way. Well, if you don't mind, just a couple more questions about the wilderness rescues. Yeah, of it's course. Um, well, I mean, what was the most common things you ran into? What are any situations that stick out in your mind that were really interesting or frightening or just, I don't know, they were like seminary in your, in your outdoors experience? I think that the most common things that we focus on, you know, most outdoor guides go and get wilderness medicine training, the most common being a nine-day wilderness first responder course. And then there's a longer 30-day wilderness EMT course. There's also shorter courses for uh, more casual outdoor recreationalists. So just two-day weekend first aid classes. So there's a whole range of training programs. And a hallmark of those things really focuses on prevention. So while you're anticipating you know, any kind of major medical problem or traumatic injury, we're really trying to focus on preventing those things. So risk mitigation is a, is a huge element of that. So you always have things like trips and falls, you know, some, especially a spinal cord injury could be very challenging to manage in a remote setting in terms of how to move that patient and keep them warm. So insulating them from the ground and the environment how to deal with uncontrolled weather circumstances. And then of course, nightfall as that may encroach on a situation where, you know, someone's going for rescue or help. If you or your listeners are interested in, in real case studies about remote medical problems, accidents in North American mountaineering is a annually reported and published journal that comes out and pretty much uh, logs cases of, remote incidents, usually in, in mountainous environments, but uh, it, you know, it can be lost person scenarios, falls, avalanches, rock slides, people doing river crossings and getting swept downstream, losing their pack, losing their eyeglasses or contacts and having to navigate a remote uh, environment with loss of vision. So all different kinds of things, lightning strikes, of course, the sexy stuff like bear attacks. I mean, all of that's covered um, in some of these publications. Well, you know, there are any, Interesting stories that you remember? Any one or two that stick out at you 
things that happened and how you helped? Yeah, as a simple example, there was one. I was on a, a routine river trip one day. It was a recreational trip. My friends and I, we were into whitewater kayaking and whitewater canoeing. We were on a very popular roadside trip one day on the Nantahala River in Western North Carolina. It was a beautiful sunny day in midsummer. So probably, you know, upper 70s, low 80s degree temperatures, air temperatures with sunshine. Uh, but the Nantahala is known for frigidly cold water. Uh, it comes out of the bottom of a lake and it's damn controlled. So it releases every day. So it's really, really ice cold water. And as we're floating down the stream, we're just on a, you know, we're on a friend trip down the river. I see this guy, he's walking up the left side of the bank of the river and he doesn't have a boat. He doesn't have a paddle. He has his flotation or life, you know, his flotation device or life vest on. And he's walking up the side of the river in the water that's opposite of the road. And on that side of the river, there's, there's a railroad track, but really nothing else. There's no access or exit point of the river. And, you know, many of us kind of float on that tree. We're like, oh, that's kind of odd. Most people, you know, like they have a boat and a paddle and they're going down river. Or if they're outside of the river, they're walking up to their car on the other side of the river. And so a friend of mine paddled over to him and realized that he was having some sort of a medical emergency. So he, he wasn't maintaining very clearly. So they called us over there and I was at the time, a critical care registered nurse and also a wilderness medicine educator instructor. So you know, we, we loaded him up and I think, I think actually a, a nearby rafting company put him in one of the rafts and then they floated down river, you know, to where there was a safe place out of the rapids and pulled over on the side of the river. And in talking to this person, he had a very altered mental status. He could only tell us his name and that he took a medication called Dilantin. Well, that triggered my mind because that's an anti-seizure medication. And while we really couldn't figure out what was going on with him, he looked, he looked hypothermic. He looked really cold. He was in otherwise no acute distress, no broken bones. You know, we did our head to toe physical exam and what kind of medical history that we could and, you know, full patient assessment, which we train people to do in these wilderness medicine courses. We made the decision that the best course of action would be to ferry him across the river to the road, flag down someone and drive him back to the river company from the PFD that he had on. So he had rented uh, some river equipment, like a boat and a paddle on PFD that day. And so we, we got him back and he was probably in his mid twenties, but uh, when we got back to the river company, he was starting to warm up a little bit and the river company contacted his emergency contact, which happened to be his mother. And then his mother came clean with the whole story and said, well, you know, my son, he really wanted to go solo kayaking on this whitewater river today. And so I didn't tell the river company that he has a really significant seizure disorder because I, I felt like if I told them that they wouldn't have rented him a solo kayak to go down the river by right. himself. I'm like, you, you know what? You're right. They probably wouldn't have let you go down the river by yourself. So this fellow, he either had a seizure and fell out of his boat or he fell out of his boat and then the cold maybe triggered a seizure, but he was in a post-ictal phase of after having a grand mal seizure. And fortunately, you know, during that seizure, he was able to protect his airway and frankly not drown. And so we found him in that confused post-seizure, what, what medical professionals call a post-ictal state, and which resolves over time. I mean, his, his mentation and cognition came back over time. But yeah, he had had a seizure on the river and was all alone. And fortunately, um, our group, along with a rafting company, found him and were able to safely extricate him from the river and get him back safe uh, with his mother that day. That's really interesting. You eventually transitioned into, uh, into working with anesthesia. So what... Um... I know what are some of the interesting 
aspects of that? What do you run across in anesthesia that's, that's interesting? Well, anesthesia is an absolutely fascinating world. Uh, the fact that a patient can walk into a hospital or a surgery center, we can meet with that individual, implement a very simple anesthesia plan with, with straightforward medications, whether that's through a regional anesthesia technique, like blocking nerve groups with a needle and local anesthesia, whether in a peripheral aspect of the body, like an extremity or along the spinal cord with something called like a spinal or an epidural, which many laboring women may be familiar with, or general anesthesia, full general anesthesia, where, you know, we um, control someone's level of consciousness and quote, put them to sleep for the case. The fact that we can implement that plan pretty, pretty safely and pretty routinely with simple strategies, and then thereby allowing surgeons and other healthcare providers to perform really invasive, um, challenging medical procedures on folks with patients being completely comfortable. And at the end of the procedure, wake them up, get them to pack you, and they're all smiles and grins and thumbs up. It's really just an absolutely fascinating place to work. For instance, last night I was working late in at the hospital and I had a 70 year old woman who came in after falling at her house. She has a complicated medical history where she has some lung disease, where she's oxygen dependent at home. She actually just about a month ago had her aortic valve replaced through a, a minimally invasive procedure. So in, in her, her heart, she had one of the main heart valves replaced due to valve failure. So she was at home on oxygen, unfortunately tripped over her oxygen tubing and snapped her femur clean in half, mid-shaft, femur fracture, clean break, totally disjointed. And so we brought her into the hospital. Given her age, there's, there's so many things we could talk about with the anesthesia, but advanced aged individuals are at risk for something called post-operative cognitive dysfunction with general anesthesia. The more asleep they get, the more at risk they are for having cognitive dysfunction, ranging anywhere from 24 to 48 hours, Sometimes up to a couple of months, they might have grogginess or forgetfulness. So we elected to do a spinal anesthetic where I take about two millimeters of local anesthesia. So really small volume of anesthesia, find the appropriate place along her spinal cord, of course, with sterile technique, clean her skin, sterile gloves, sterile draping, access that place in her spinal cord, inject these two milliliters of uh, local anesthesia, which completely knock out the sensory pathways of her spinal cord for a duration of time of about, you know, four hours or so. And then she's able to be relatively completely awake yet have no sensation, full numbness, full paralysis of her lower extremities. So within, you know, five, 10 minutes of that spinal anesthetic going in, we had her positioned on the operating room bed. She was talking with me comfortably. Now this is someone who is in excruciating pain in the pre-op area with this broken femur. And uh, we did our best to position her with some mild sedation to get the spinal anesthetic placed in her back so she was comfortable during the procedure. And then she's on the operating room bed, comfortably talking to me, cracking up, making jokes, and the sur you know the surgical drapes are up to keep things sterile. And the surgeon has her right leg 90 degrees parallel, straight up in the air, with sometimes we joke about it, like she has two knees, she has her knee knee, and then she's got this also unstable fracture to where her leg is completely flaccid at the fracture site. Her leg is straight up in the air. She's 
totally comfortable having a conversation with me while the surgeon prepares her leg and cleans her leg with some sterile cleaning solution so he can access and do surgery to repair her leg. So we're able to do that with just two milliliters of fluid injected around the primary nerve bundle in her lumbar spine, and she's completely comfortable for the case wide awake for the procedure with no risk of post-op cognitive dysfunction. So we get to do that kind of stuff. It's amazing. It's really, it's on the level of miracle. I think it's such a privilege to work in this field. It's so fascinating. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So it's not just about giving someone anesthesia, talking to them and all of a sudden they pass out and, and that's it. And that's the end. That ends your involvement with them, right? Well, no, that's actually in many ways begins our involvement with them. So anesthesia provider. So what I just described was a spinal anesthetic, which is common in lower extremity surgeries and even sometimes childbirth for cesarean uh, sections. So we can give spinal anesthetics for a range of different surgeries. But I think what most people think of when they think of anesthesia is going all the way off to sleep. So anesthesia is, is a profession in a field of professionals, whether physicians or nurse anesthetists who train to administer anesthesia, both professionals are trained to basically manage the patient's physiology entirely during a surgical procedure. So in the classic general anesthetic, we apply monitors to keep a close eye on a patient's vital signs, like their heart rate, their blood pressure, their oxygen saturation, and their breathing status. So their um, expired carbon dioxide levels and, and other parameters if we need to monitor more invasive monitoring. So we have, we have a really good clear picture of what their physiology is doing. We administer an anesthetic. So usually through an IV, we'll give someone IV medication to render them unconscious. And then usually that rendering of un- unconsciousness eliminates people's ability to breathe on their own. So very commonly, anesthesia providers will insert a breathing device or breathing tube into the airways of patients, and we take over their breathing for them. So literally, we're monitoring every heartbeat, every breath that patients have during surgery. And surgery is not without risk. You know, oftentimes, there can be blood loss or complications of surgery that we have to keep a very close eye on. And then we manage that patient's physiology, everything from the reaction of their sympathetic nervous system to their heart rate and blood pressure to the stress of surgery. So even though patients are asleep or unconscious, their body still responds to pain. So we make make sure that their body is, um, you know, appropriately sedated and supported with analgesic medications or pain medications so that the stress response is controlled we keep them warm. We keep their fluid volume status appropriate. So basically maintaining all of their systems and functions from a hemodynamic and physiologic standpoint throughout the surgery. And then at the end, we wake them up at the appropriate point to make sure that they're going to be awake to be able to breathe on their own and be completely comfortable in the post-anesthesia recovery. So are there different levels of general anesthesia depending on the surgery or do you put people like, what do you call the degrees of anesthesia that you give people in a surgery? That's great. That's a great question. There are different types of anesthesia and different depths of anesthesia. So I've described a couple of different things already. So just to to recap for your listeners, we can do general anesthesia, which is generally understood as someone going off to sleep. So you're not aware, you're not conscious of what's going on around you. It often feels that I had 
probably a, a level of general anesthesia for my wisdom teeth removal. I went to sleep and it felt like a moment later I was awake, but I was really in the dentist's office for probably you know, a half hour while they removed wisdom teeth and gave me some stitches and things. So it often is like a lights out, lights on experience for patients, but hours can go by in the interim. So that's a, that's a deep level of anesthesia called general anesthesia. And then there are other types of anesthesia where we can block nerve bundles with local anesthesia through what we call simply as, as regional anesthesia blocks or peripheral nerve blocks or neuraxial anesthesia where we're working with the spinal cord with spinal injections or epidurals to block the central nerve groups in the spinal cord. And for those cases, patients can stay fully awake. Now, a lot of your listeners may be familiar with simple dental procedures like wisdom teeth removal or colonoscopies. And sometimes those procedures are done under milder sedation. So you get some medicine through your IV that makes you comfortable, a little drowsy, a little asleep, maybe a little forgetful. So you don't remember the colonoscopy, but you're not truly under a full general anesthesia where the anesthesia provider has to take over your breathing and manage your blood pressure as a response to those anesthetics. So what do the recovery times look like and what do the recoveries look like for an epidural type thing for, and then, and then these seemingly two levels you spoke about of anesthesia? Yeah, that, that's great. So so the regional anesthesia with things like peripheral nerve blocks, spinal anesthetics, and epidural anesthesia, which would go through an epidural catheter in someone's back along their spinal cord, those are all dependent upon the duration of action of the local anesthetic that we inject around the nerve bundles that we're targeting. So sometimes, maybe even most commonly, those are one-time injections. So we give a little bit of numbing medicine at the level of the skin so that the patient doesn't really feel a significant degree of discomfort by placing the the needle that will actually deliver the peripheral nerve block. That needle usually goes a little bit deeper into muscle groups to get closer to the nerve uh, bundles. And that can be a one-time shot with medication that can last anywhere from four to six hours up to, you know, with newer emerging medications. Liposomal bupivacaine is one. So it's a Bupivacaine is a local anesthetic that's encased in a molecule of liposomes or, or fat molecule. That breaks down over a period of 72 hours. So people can have full pain relief for up to three, four, sometimes even five days, depending on what other adjuncts get put into that single shot block. So one shot, one kind of bolus of local anesthesia around a nerve bundle can provide pain relief for up to three to four days. Sometimes we'll put a catheter in around a nerve bundle, and so we can slowly administer anesthesia. Most laboring women probably have a concept of not a, an experience uh, of having an epidural, which is a small catheter like the size of fishing line that we place around the spinal nerve roots in the lower back. And we slowly push in some local anesthesia around those nerve bundles through an infusion pump while a person is laboring through the process of giving childbirth. And then whenever that catheter is removed, usually that local anesthesia is wearing off within a matter of two to three hours. Now, general anesthesia, where someone's going all the way off to sleep with medicine through their IV, and then they often stay asleep with medicine that they inhale. So we switch them over to an, an inhalational anesthetic that they would breathe in and out. This harkens back to the days of ether anesthesia. And now we use medicines like Sevoflurane, isoflurane, desflurane, nitrous oxide, and others. So that medication usually wears off in a couple of hours as people breathe that off. 
Well, why start people on uh, an IV and then uh, put them onto a breathing medication? Like, what's the why do that? That that's a really great question. So, the IV medicine is usually simpler to administer to get someone off to sleep. It's oftentimes a more pleasant experience to go to sleep with medicine through your IV. You often don't feel the medicine going in your IV. Some patients will even feel a sense of euphoria as they're getting that medication, and then they simply go to sleep. They lose consciousness. We do sometimes do inhalational inductions, which is a a phrase uh, meaning that we can get people to go to sleep through breathing medicine. This is not uncommon to do with young children. You think about, uh, you know, one of the primary goals of anesthesia providers is patient comfort and to give them a really satisfying experience, an experience that is as pain-free and as low on the anxiety threshold as possible. So we want people to be as comfortable as possible when they come in for these procedures, which is, I think is you know, going back to like, why did you get an anesthesia? Why do you like it? It's one of the amazing, I mean, it's, it's one of the simple miracles of modern healthcare that we can do really what would otherwise be prohibitive procedures on people due to the pain threshold. But the advent of anesthesia, I mean, it has undeniably revolutionized the way that we do healthcare, which is obvious at this point in time. But, you know, 100, 150 years ago, it was not so obvious. So going back to the specific example, sometimes with children, it would be a painful experience for that child to get an IV placed. That's a painful experience to go through. So sometimes with kids, we'll skip that and we'll take them to the operating room. Oftentimes the lights are turned down low. We'll watch cartoon videos. They'll have their parent there. Sometimes the kids can sit up in their parents' lap or in the anesthesia provider's chair or something like that. And we'll have them breathe inhalational anesthesia that kind of creeps up on them. So they have to wear a mask over their nose and mouth and some, you know, the mom or the parent can hold the mask. The anesthesia provider can hold the mask. Sometimes the masks are flavored like strawberry or raspberries. We can put some flavoring in the mask and they'll fall asleep through breathing that mask. That prevents them from having to get a painful IV placed. But for most adults who can tolerate getting an IV placed, uh, it can be a quicker and just process to get them to sleep with an IV anesthetic. And then to specifically answer your question, it's often a function of, frankly, the technical ease for the anesthesia provider to switch them over to an inhalational anesthetic. It's on our anesthesia breathing machine. It's a simple turn of a dial that turns on the anesthesia gas. And it can oftentimes be a cheaper anesthetic for the patient in terms of an expense. So the inhalational anesthetics today are usually pretty inexpensive and easy to turn on and easy to turn off. They also give us the ability to monitor the depth of anesthesia through the expired value or concentration of that inhalational anesthetic. So you breathe in the anesthesia, and when you breathe out, we're able to sample that gas and see just how much anesthesia we're actually delivering them. And then, of course, the science of anesthesia has outlined how much of that exhalational anesthesia would equilibrate to what depth of anesthesia that we're shooting for. So inhalational anesthetics allow for a degree of monitoring that IV anesthetics right now do not commonly allow for. So can you pick the type of anesthetic you want? Uh, Is there any difference? Like if you want a a quote unquote better one, what would make it better if there is such a thing or, you know, more expensive ones better for some reason? Oh, that's a super interesting question and and a really good one to talk about. So yes, you can pick or weigh in on your anesthetic. The kind of the peek behind the curtain truth of it all is that oftentimes the style of anesthesia that you're going to get is simply comes down to the anesthesia provider's choice. Now that can be 
related mostly to their comfort level. So there are different challenges with delivering different types of anesthetics. And then the other primary driver for the type of anesthesia that patients receive is what the surgery calls for. So what kind of anesthesia does the surgeon need for? So we're not there just to provide a service for the patient, you know, to keep them comfortable and pain-free, but also really a primary driver for us is to facilitate the surgeon's ease at being able to do the surgery. If she can perform a surgery faster because she has optimal operating conditions, then that's better for everybody. You can see more patients in a day, that patients have less OR time charged to them. It's a, oftentimes a more minimally invasive, simpler procedure for the patient, so less pain involved. But to hopefully speak a message of empowerment to your listeners, you can absolutely have a conversation with your anesthesia provider, talk to them about what they're giving, ask questions. Healthcare is, I think, clouded in mystery for people, and people often feel very uncomfortable due to just lack of knowledge, you can ask any questions. There's no stupid questions. You can talk to your anesthesia provider, have them explain, you know, what, what are you planning in terms of my anesthetic? What kinds of choices can I have? If you know an anesthesia provider or get the chance to talk to someone's anesthesia office ahead of your surgery, which is not uncommon in today, you can, you know, ask more detailed questions about what kinds of choices do I have? So often simple choices to talk about with your anesthesia provider is, Will I have to go all the way to sleep or can this be done with a regional anesthesia technique like a nerve block or a spinal or an epidural? So that's a big question. And then if I am going all the way off to sleep, two big options are, can I have total IV anesthesia? We cleverly nicknamed that TIVA, like the sandal, but T-I-V-A, total IV anesthesia, or will this be an inhalational anesthetic? Inhalational anesthesia does often put people at a little bit higher risk for post-operative nausea, vomiting, and sometimes TIVA anesthesia can, depending on what's given, puts people at a lower risk for post-operative nausea, vomiting. It takes a little bit more effort. There's some reasons why anesthesia providers wouldn't use TIVA. It doesn't give you the, the same level of monitoring in terms of depth of anesthesia that an inhalational anesthetic offers the anesthesia provider. So sometimes anesthesia providers are a little bit less comfortable doing the TIVA because they want that feedback of the measured exhaled gas on an inhalational anesthetic. But, uh, you know, all the anesthesia providers are trained in all of these techniques. And I think patients have a lot more choice than maybe they realize. So it's, it's definitely worth having a conversation with your anesthesia provider about what's going to happen. But what kind of effects can you modulate besides just local versus general? What complications or people have, you know, what if someone says, I want to be anesthetized just enough. I don't want to you know, be groggy for two days later. I don't want to have all these after effects. Like are there different levels and grades you can use or tailored effects? That's a great question. And sometimes, honestly, to be clear about it, some depending on the surgery, sometimes you don't even need an anesthesia provider. Sometimes the surgeon can provide that local anesthesia injected in and around the surgery site, and you don't even have to have an anesthesia provider involved. Now, it depends on the surgeon's comfort for that uh, in terms of their skill level. And frankly, it really comes down to, is the type of surgery amenable to local injection? So every day at surgery centers and hospitals around the nation, surgeons provide the local injection of anesthesia around very, very simple surgical sites. So 
things like melanoma skin tumor removals. Simple podiatry procedures, dental procedures are often performed by the dentist or the podiatrist or the surgeon without any kind of involvement from a qualified anesthesia provider. And that's often very safe. It's for the more complicated types of anesthesia and sedation and the more complicated types of surgery that you're often really needing an anesthesia provider to be there with their 100% dedicated focus on that patient's safety and the level of sedation and anesthesia that they're going to get. So what are the parameters that are monitored when someone's under anesthesia? Which are the important ones? That's great. Well, there are national guidelines in terms of minimal safety requirements for monitoring. So those include monitoring someone's heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, temperature, and pulse oximeter, which is their oxygen saturation. Those things are all critical. Oftentimes, we also add end tidal CO2 monitoring, and that's either invasive monitoring, like with a breathing tube or endotracheal tube, or we have nasal cannulas that just simply drape in a patient's nose, little little plastic prongs that sit in someone's nose that have an entitled CO2 sampling line associated with them. And that gives us really valuable information about if someone's breathing. As we've already discussed, the deeper someone is under anesthesia, there's a threshold there where people can lose their internal drive to breathe. And then anesthesia providers either have to support their airway by simple manipulations of their head classic CPR training, head tilt, chin lift, just opening their airway up by a simple technique. Or sometimes we have to take over breathing for a patient, whether through a mask that has a little bag associated with it or putting in some sort of airway device. So, but those, those monitoring parameters. So the simple vital signs like heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate, pulse oximetry, temperature, and entitled CO2 are often the baseline standards that anesthesia providers will use to to monitor your physiology. Other things like invasive lab results, we're trained in managing all of those from a physiologic standpoint. So understanding your laboratory values, your acid-base balance, urine output, and then we can do invasive monitoring techniques like invasive blood pressures, and then putting in central lines to monitor specific pressures within the heart. So uh, different areas of of the heart. If we're doing more invasive cardiac procedures, uh, we can also get into cerebral oximetry and different um, regional brain oximetry monitors, and then sedation level monitors in terms of processed EEG or electroencephalograms to monitor brain waves and depths of anesthesia through more technical parameters. Um, is there anything you can modulate while someone's you know? under anesthesia that, I don't know, would help them? Can you increase the oxygen to a higher saturation than normal for a period of time? Or like, yeah, absolutely. Anesthesia can do where you don't even need surgery, but the anesthesia itself can modulate their condition somehow. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Those are great questions. So I'll split them up and I'll, I'll come back to your, your second question. So the first one, um, every anesthesia, every surgical procedure, every procedure that an anesthesia provider is involved in, they have the opportunity and they are likely modulating some form of your physiology or immune response to the surgical procedure. So we give short-acting single-dose steroids. We give antiemetics. We give analgesics. So a very common thing that I, I talk to our students about and, and members of the public in terms of like a simple way to conceptualize what anesthesia providers do we often talk about the five things that anesthesia providers do. So we, do, we provide anxiolysis, which is reduction in anxiety. 
whether that's through your dashing good looks and, and brilliant charm as a provider or through medication in the pre-op area, it's usually medication. Sedation, sedation is like one axis of anesthesia. So how asleep you are. Another one though is analgesia. So as we've talked about, you could be completely asleep, but your body is still going to respond to the painful stimuli, the surgical stimuli, a knife through the skin is even, you may not be aware that that's going on, but without adequate analgesia on board, without pain medications on board, or those nerves blocked by regional anesthesia, your body will produce an immune response and a physiological response to that. Your heart rate will go up. Your blood pressure will go up. You'll have uh, an immune response with release of pro-inflammatory modulators that can have implications in the short and long term. So sedation is one access, analgesia is another. And then often for a lot of procedures, we're providing neuromuscular blockade. We paralyze people. We make sure they're asleep first. And we monitor the level of paralysis. That makes large muscle groups flaccid and facilitates the surgery oftentimes. Even smaller muscles um, like the diaphragm, you know, controlling someone's breathing through pure paralysis, they're not having extraneous abdominal movement or diaphragm movement for intra-abdominal or intra-thoracic procedures is really important. So we modulate that. We can paralyze people, monitor the level of their paralysis, and then reverse those paralytics at the end of the case. And then lastly, control of the autonomic nervous system, which means we can keep a close eye on their heart rate, their blood pressure, their acid-base balance, and kind of tinker with all of those things as we need to, to keep people in as close of a range to homeostasis uh, and physiologic, you know, normal baseline as possible, all with the goal to wake them up at the end of the procedure, comfortable and able to breathe on their own with normal physiology. So we're able to do all of those things. And we, and we are doing an element of all of those things during every single surgical case. Your second question was, is there anything that anesthesia providers can do to basically help people skip surgery? Generally speaking, we're there to facilitate someone else doing something to you. So a dentist, a podiatrist, an obstetrician, a surgeon. So we make their jobs possible and we make the experience of interacting with those providers much more comfortable. There is a little window of healthcare where anesthesia providers provide direct patient care and the patient is actually seeking out the anesthesia provider for the provision of that care. And we're not helping facilitate someone else's job. And that really comes into chronic pain management. So anesthesia providers can do epidural steroid injections. I have a friend, for instance, in Illinois, he's a CRNA who he and another CRNA operate as the anesthesiologist at their group. They have a freestanding chronic pain management practice where they actually employ an interventional radiologist a chiropractor, physical therapist, and a team of nurses uh, to do chronic pain management with patients on an outpatient basis. So the anesthesia providers, the CRNAs will do epidural steroid injections or regional nerve blocks to eliminate the pain so that people can then in-house see the physical therapist, see the chiropractor without pain and work on functional muscle group rehabilitation. So in that way, patients can go see anesthesia providers directly for that service. But usually we're trying to facilitate somebody else doing their job to help you get on the path to healing. Yeah, I just wonder if there's any um, any other anesthesias that could be used for non-surgical purposes. Or, uh... Yeah, your question brings up an, another really good point that, uh, that I'm just remembering now. So ketamine infusion clinics and other types of chron chronic pain management or, or even for um, some psychiatric disorders like depression and suicidal ideation, uh, those can be used as well. And anesthesia providers can provide those services. So these are 
typically set up as outpatient experiences where patients would go in for usually a one hour infusion of ketamine through a peripheral IV. It's often in like a relaxing kind of spa like setting uh, depends on the, the healthcare provider in terms of how they set up their actual physical shop. But the therapy is um, usually a, a once a week up to maybe th- two or three times a week for a duration of a handful of a weeks, you know, four, six, eight weeks of infusions of ketamine lasting an hour at a time. And that there's a lot of really interesting emerging science on the efficacy of ketamine for depression. And then uh, in an acute way, suicidal ideation. Now patients aren't going in for an infusion of ketamine for suicidal ideation, but if you were to go to a hospital Uh, There's actually a a nasal form of ketamine that can be administered as a nasal spray that has done wonders for helping people through that acute phase of suicidal ideation. So that's, that's kind of a side should not be considered on the umbrella of what your anesthesia provider would do for you, but um, just a different use of ketamine right now in an emergency setting. And I would definitely recommend for any of the, you know, for any of the mental health disorders that these therapies be done in consultation or even in conjunction with a mental health professional, like a psychologist or a psychiatrist. But the anesthesia provider is often the one who will help administer the uh, ketamine infusion for some of these issues, whether it's chronic pain or uh, depressive states. Yeah, that's interesting. What do you see as the future of anesthesia? Are there any tweaks needed? Like how would it be improved for people uh, over what it does right now? Well, I think that there's going to continue to be, you know, I was, I was just talking with one of our anesthesia residents just this week. She's finishing up her physician residency in anesthesia and she's headed towards a, a master's of business administration and with the goal of working at MIT and research and development in the future. And we were talking about both on the surgical end and, and the anesthesia end that to, to think, uh, you know, where we are now in 2021 to be the pinnacle of our evolution in the provision of anesthesia would be foolish. If anything, it just takes a cursory look back at the history of anesthesia to realize how far we have come and how even recent innovations have dramatically changed the way that we do anesthesia, both in terms of the safety of anesthesia and also the the pharmacotherapies that we're able to employ. So I think that it would be hard to speculate on where the future is headed, but to say that we're done would be silly. Uh, to say that there's not innovation to be had, there I think there can be remarkable innovations both in technology and pharmacology. And then probably, you know, I think one of the areas that we've not really talked about is how anesthesia is provided in the United States and really the state of our healthcare system. I think we all know that healthcare is really, really expensive in the United States and that while we spend uh, an astronomical percentage of our gross domestic, domestic product on, on healthcare expenses, the United States often ranks way down the list. I think recently we were 37th on the list of developed nations in terms of our health outcomes. So we have a long way to go, I think, as a healthcare industry, as a healthcare profession to continue to improve healthcare outcomes and anesthesia providers are going to be in that mix. I think we have the potential to reduce costs for patients while continuing to provide safer anesthetics, more minimally invasive surgeries to facilitate people's recovery. One area in particular, Richard, that we've spent a lot of time thinking about as anesthesia providers recently is responding to the opioid crisis. So I said one of the arms of anesthesia is analgesia. Patients do get opioids often perioperatively, Usually the doses of opioids they're given perioperatively put them at no risk for addiction postoperatively, but it's the, it's the prescription of medications often by surgeons and surgical offices 
Uh, and then the refill and the refill and the refill of those prescription medications following surgical procedures that sometimes put people at risk for opioid addiction, opioid abuse syndromes. So anesthesia providers can intervene in the acute perioperative environment. There's an emerging literature base on using opioid-free and opioid-sparing techniques to get people through what would otherwise be very painful surgeries without opioids whatsoever. So they were not triggering their bodies, uh, triggering their bodies uh, with opioids, even in this acute perioperative timeframe. So anesthesia providers are on the forefront, I think, of of trying to help provide solutions for the opioid crisis in the United States. There's a lot going on. It's a very exciting field to be in. It's something that a lot of people don't think about. You think about, yeah, if I get sick or if I get hurt, I might go see a surgeon. I might have to go to the hospital and get fixed. But we often don't think about there being this whole group of professionals out there that train on physiology, train on pharmacology, train on the technology of uh, the equipment that we use in order to keep people safe and pain-free and optimize their outcomes uh, from an anesthesia perspective. So there's a whole world out there for people to get involved in, both as providers and as researchers and developers. If someone's uh, taking, you know, I don't know, hydroxy, well, sorry, hydrocodone or one of these other opioids for a long-term I don't know, maybe they're addicted, maybe they're not. Uh, will that modulate their anesthesia where well, there's certain drugs that people take where you can't give them anesthesia or you have to change what you use? Yeah, that's a great question. And the short answer is yes, in both, in both situations. So on patients who have chronic pain syndromes uh, or opioid addiction or substance abuse, whether that's illicit drug use or prescription opioid medications or even alcohol abuse, all of those things are very important to tell your anesthesia provider about. We can absolutely still give you adequate anesthesia uh, in the perioperative environment. It really depends on what patients are taking and what they're using, if they are using those for a recreational or from an addictive mental health standpoint. So the patient-specific information is really important in terms of how we tailor their anesthetic. But we can absolutely get people through perioperative environment safe and as pain-free as possible. But a lot of those things are very important. For instance, one of the podcasts I just did was with a researcher and clinician named Aurora Quay, who I work with here in Portland. She's done a lot of work on the perioperative management of buprenorphine, which is uh, chronic pain management, and it's also a man- medication. And it's also a medication that's used in opioid use disorder syndromes for helping people cope with that disorder. So that presents particular challenges because it's an opioid antagonist agonist. And so it, it blocks some of the opioid receptors, making it more difficult for patient, for providers to treat pain perioperatively. And she's at the forefront of doing research on that, on, on how to tweak the prescriptions of those medications in the day or two ahead of surgery, how to manage those patients perioperatively and how to support them postoperatively so that they don't withdraw if they were to stop that medication so that patients are so that providers during that acute phase can adequately treat their pain and so that patients have a, a plan to stay safe and um, you know to not have a relapse into opioid abuse postoperatively. So uh, the medications that people are on are profoundly important for us. So that's always part of our preoperative assessment of patients is what medications you take and then how we change our anesthesia plan and, and modulate things to keep people safe and pain-free perioperatively uh, are shaped by that preoperative plan. Is there any anesthesia treatment that uh, can help get people off of other addictive substances? 
You know, I would say one of the things that we can do in the acute perioperative phase, I think looking at opioid free anesthesia is really fascinating. So if you have someone that is struggling with opioid abuse and they're very concerned about going in for what might even be a simple surgery, we see this commonly in our patient uh, in our patients that do struggle with opioid abuse, they'll come in and they're very, they're very concerned. You know, they're very committed to their treatment. They're very committed to their recovery. And they're concerned that we're going to derail them by giving them opioids or that they're going to have that sense of euphoria, you know, through an IV administered medication. So we're able to give them things perioperatively that keep them safe and keep them on the path to where they want to go in terms of, you know, not having some of those detrimental experiences in their own way. So I think opioid free anesthesia is, is one area that we can affect some positive change and uh, clarify your question for me one more time. Cause I, I think I was leaving back on a couple of different ideas I was thinking about. Oh, you know, like uh, I guess some people will say like Ibogaine or ayahuasca, let's say can help people with, you know, with addictions to other substances. Is there any oh, right. anesthesia protocol that can help people with addictions to certain substances? Right. Thank you so much for clarifying. Uh, yeah. So we can do opioid free anesthesia perioperatively to help people. And then I think one of the, one of the main things uh, I'm not as familiar with the two medications that you just mentioned. I know that people, that there are care providers out there who can help people with medicines that may not commonly be prescribed to folks through healthcare providers um, that can be very effective for anesthesia providers using the medications that are commonly available to us, I think I would go back to ketamine as one of the areas that is emerging in the healthcare marketplace really to help people with different psychological disorders, mood disorders, and uh, substance abuse disorders. So there have been people who have struggled with substance abuse who have gone through like a ketamine infusion clinic and that's helped them overcome their substance abuse and sometimes the mental health kind of contextual considerations that are helping shape that abusive journey that they're on with substances. So it can help people recover from those and, and move forward in a, in a healthier way. Well, very good. John, what's the best way for people to find your podcast and find out more about your work? Oh, thanks so much, Richard. So the podcast is Anesthesia Guidebook. It's available through all the main podcast catchers out there. So Apple, Google, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and then the website is anesthesiaguidebook.com. There are show notes to all the podcasts, so resources and links to literature. And then I'm on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, either at John Lawrence, J-O-N-L-O-W-R-A-N-C-E, or Anesthesia Guidebook. Well, very good, John. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Richard, thank you so much. I really appreciate the work that you do. It's been fascinating to listen to your podcast, and uh, I appreciate the invitation to speak with you today and talk a little bit about anesthesia. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.